Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today. Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Mike Signer, the author of Cry Havoc, Charlottesville and American Democracy Under Siege. This is his third book. He is the former mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia. So thanks so much for being here, Mayor Mike Signer. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, it's our pleasure. Uh, his book um, is a memoir. It's our first memoir we've had on the show. And what makes it so important is that he was the mayor of Charlottesville back in August of 2017 during the so-called Unite the Right rallies when Charlottesville, home of the University of Virginia, of course, and Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, was invaded by hundreds of white supremacists and neo-Nazis who carried torches, shouted hateful slogans. Many of us remember seeing that video. Um, they attacked counter-protesters, and one counter-protester was even killed by a terrorist who drove his car into a crowd of people. And so the mayor's book recounts not only that day, but the lead up to it, which many of us watching from afar didn't realize was boiling for many months, and I didn't until I read through your book. Um, but some could say it was boiling for even longer than that. So let's start this conversation right. with Thomas Jefferson. Uh, of course, it would be his city that would be the one that this kind of thing uh, would, happen in, would happen in with all that he represents. That's an interesting point. Yeah, I, I wanted to write the book, I think primarily for the reason that you just said, which is this is going to be an instance of modern American history that will be discussed for, I think, for generations, what happened in Charlottesville. It'll be a touchstone like Selma or Hurricane Katrina or uh, the, the Kent State Massacre, other catastrophes that take on different layers of meaning and that need to be understood. And I was in this really unique position. And you're right, there was a prehistory to it. And, and it's important to understand because history that, that unfolds in local contexts, like city politics, you have to understand all of the twists and turns and all the surprises that got you to that point. And I think that's a very astute uh, observation, Evan, that it, it, it was in part because of how famous Charlotte was because of Thomas Jefferson's association that all this began there in the first place. And two of the most prominent white nationalists who ultimately geared up this whole event were University of Virginia graduates. So there, there is a, there is a, um, there is a story about about the the town's connection to Jefferson that put it on the map for all of these the, this series of white nationalist events that happened in 2017. Yeah. Um, so what I want to want to have you do is just describe Charlottesville for those of us who haven't been here um, or haven't sure. been there. Uh, I haven't been there, um, and also um, the monuments that were there at the yeah. time that this was all happening um, because the stated purpose for this rally was to protect the Robert E. Lee statue. So explain Charlottesville for us, just to kind of a day-to-day -day basis, what it's like, and then just the kind of uh, context that it's in with all the memorials and monuments that are there. Charlottesville is a small Southern liberal college town that is also extremely famous and that has an outsized reputation that um, draws a lot of media attention to things that happen here. But at its root, it's a progressive town of 
just about 50,000 people that is two hours from Washington that has the University of Virginia here and Monticello, which is Thomas Jefferson's home, is right nearby. It's quirky and very progressive, voted for Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton. Um, beautiful. There's a deep sense of history. There's a lot of infill development. So there's a, there's a real lived in creative sense of town. There's a downtown mall, which was created about 30 years ago where the main street was blocked off and people walk on it. That's kind of the center of town, but there's also, uh, I'm sorry. You, no, I, I was just going to ask, do people grow up and stay there or yeah. they grow up and leave? They, the, all things happen, but there's a very famous trend that happens here where people who come here for the University of Virginia end up moving away and then coming back where they end up staying because they love the town so much. There was, there was a alternative Newsweekly called The Hook, which was based on a, that's a famous local saying that Charles was the hook. You get hooked, you come here, you come back here. That was my story. I went here, I had two younger sisters who had gone to UVA for undergrad and I went here for law school and then I moved back to Northern Virginia to go practice law and do a bunch of other stuff. But I ended up wanting to come back here to have a family. So it, it really does hook you. But then there's there's a problem here, which is a history of of white supremacy and of systemic racism because it's a southern town. And there was particularly brutal Jim Crow um, and uh, laws here and the schools were shut down rather than desegregate. And um, black neighborhoods were raised under urban renewal, and there's a lot of pain and trauma that lingers. And there's there's systemic poverty among the local African American population, especially, which is about 20% um, of the town. And so you have a very mixed reality where you have a very charming town that often is ranked in the top five of towns around the country for livability or health or foodies. But then you have this kind of brewing history underneath where there has been systematic injustice. And a lot of that uh, came to, comes to roost in people's feelings about, about the history. And you had these two Confederate general monuments that were put in place in the 1920s, right near what is now the downtown mall to Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. And especially one of them, Robert E. Lee is, is dominant on top of kind of a hill in this one in this one park and it became the topic of protests to take it down um, in 2016. And that's really the beginning of the story of the book. And um, the book recounts in tremendous detail um, and really vivid detail, um, just all of the things that kind of started to happen that led up to these rallies. Um, but explain right. um, when you first realized that Charlottesville had become a target, not just as a point of discussion, but as a target for this kind of a rally? Well, the, the national story that broke was when, the, was when Richard Spencer, who is this white nationalist who went to UVA, who started a, a think tank called the National Policy Institute. I think I use the word think tank lightly, but he founded the term <laughs> alt-right and he... Uh, <laughs> And he um, what very famously led this group of his acolytes who are frightening. They have buzz cuts. They wear this uniform of khaki pants and, and white button downs. And they all went to the Washington Hilton a couple weeks after Donald Trump won 
the election in 2016, and they did this kind of series of Heil Trump salutes that in, and it looked like a neo-fascist gathering in the nation's capital. So Richard Spencer did that. There was this brewing controversy that got way more national exposure than it should have between this right-wing blogger in Charlottesville and the African-American vice mayor of the city who had launched a drive to take down the Lee statue and the right-wing bloggers named Jason Kessler, and he wanted Wes Bellamy, who was the vice mayor, out of office for a whole bunch of reasons and really targeted him. Kessler was particularly adept at getting national coverage and networking to people like Richard Spencer, who was already a national right-wing celebrity. So in May of the next year, Spencer came and did a flash mob of about 100 of his followers at the Lee statue capitalizing on several months of of media attention to this drive that Kessler was doing to get Bellamy out of office, which failed. Um, and Spencer and his followers had, a, had tiki torches at the Robert E. Lee statue. And it was at, at night. And I was the mayor of the time. We had just declared ourselves a welcoming city where we have 100 Muslim political refugees that come to Charlottesville every year through the International Rescue Committee. And it was very important to me to say that we were welcoming. And, and so I and I, I may have contributed unintentionally to the to the growing firestorm that was. And I talk about this in the book because yeah. I put out a blistering statement saying that such hatred. Um, we're a welcoming city, but such hatred is not welcome here. And this is reminiscent of the Ku Klux Klan. And wanted to repudiate these people but very quickly that it was a sensation it was on like cnn international that there was this rally of a hundred apparent neo-nazis with tiki torches at this robert e lee statue uh, meanwhile the city council had voted to remove the statue but could not do so because there was a state law preventing that from happening so there was this very pent-up situation that was leading to tons of conflict between protesters and counter-protesters, the very far left and the very far right. And that really created this witch's brew of a of, of what then became the summer of hate in Charlottesville. Yeah, and, and we definitely want to, um, uh, we are going to talk about um, the sort of thing that leaders battle when they decide mm -hmm. how they're going to respond to these groups. Does the response um, bring them more attention um, uh, or is yep. it something that, that um, has to be said and 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 you know I'll be darned I won't say something about it but but I do want to get to that but um, you know you, you've heard me uh, people listening have heard me call you mayor but I think it's important and this is one of the themes in the book that mayor is not the mayor that I grew up watching uh, in New York right. the mayor of New York is like the the king of New York um, right. the mayor of Charlottesville is a much different title and this is one of the things that you wrestle as you try to navigate this um, sort of blossoming crisis that you have um, so explain what mayor of Char of Charlottesville means and what the difference is between a weak mayor and a strong mayor. So 50% of American cities almost have this form of government that almost nobody knows what it is until there's a crisis. It's called a weak mayor form of government where you have a professional city manager or county executive sitting on top of the government and they are the operational head of the government and this was created in the progressive era 100 over 100 years ago to try and professionalize government so the mayor even though they have that title they are really the chair of the board 
So the board is the elected officials who 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 pass policy for the city and vote on the budget, but they are not operational. So operational means they do not have authority over the day-to-day operational decisions of the government. That's the city manager's job. Not only do they not have authority, they're prevented from having authority because so, it is it is the city manager's role. So that was the situation we had in, in Charlottesville was the city manager was the emergency manager for the city. They they controlled the staff who they, the police reported to them, for instance, or they made decisions about how the city communicated. And the mayor, even though you look like <laughs> you're supposed to be the, you know, running the city, you're, you're not running the city. You're and just people, the chair of the board. People may look to you um, because they're familiar with the term mayor. When you talk about this in the book, they go, right. oh, well, that's the mayor. But, but in reality, you can't do the things that... Um, I suppose traditionally we think American do uh, order the police chief to do something, order right. a street shut down, fire the head of the garbage department, fire sanitation, deal with the sewers. Right. You're basically right. just hiring the person who's going to do that as the board. And so, so talk about yeah. So talk about what the role is as chair of the board. Well, you make policy and you hire the city manager and you hold public meetings. So you take in public comment. A colleague of mine referred to it as sort of a combination of the legislative and judicial branch because you can you you make laws so you so you pass ordinances the city council that's the most probably important job they have other than passing the budget but you do not and and, and you kind of hear citizen complaints so it creates this really complicated situation where city council they hear people so they come to the city council with complaints or with with their ideas in public comment sessions but really the person in the government who can actually do something about those complaints most directly is the city manager and i talk about this a lot in the book and it's it's crucial to understand because so much of happening of what's happening right now in all these cities minneapolis or atlanta or washington dc or uh, you, you look around the country has to do with what the powers of the elected of, of the local elected officials are and are not. And, and so I, the, the devil is always in the details. If I could say there's one takeaway message from this book in this time, it's that the devil is in the details. And in a time of like collapsing civic education, when journalists don't pay very much attention to the nitty gritty of local government, and when they don't even know, that was one of the problems that we had it's really important to get down into these details because that's the only way that anything is going to happen that makes people feel like we're moving forward as a country. So, so this all really matters while you're mayor of Charlottesville during this sort of crisis. Um, And so explain some of the battles that the city was engaged in. You were facing demands to simply shut this rally down. Um, There was a first amendment debate that was going on over whether they had the right to simply show up and say these things. There were questions about whether you could ban things that they could bring into the area. There were questions about whether you could just simply move the rally to somewhere that you thought would be more safe. So describe some of these battles and how your position as weak mayor, not you, but the position of weak mayor didn't um, allow you to solve these problems. Well, I'll I'll give you three examples of, of, of dozens in the book. Um, one was the demand that we get rid of these Confederate statues, or and that I get rid of them, which which was which was happening. We there was a to, to add a layer of complication onto this. Virginia is what's called a a Dillon's Rule state, where 
cities have less power. It is anti-home rule. So you have some states in the country where cities can do whatever they want. Virginia is the exact opposite. And we have a part-time state legislature. So you actually will be sued if you're a city and you pass any ordinance that's not allowed by the by the General Assembly in Richmond. On top of that, the General Assembly in Richmond had passed a law that said you may cities may not disturb or remove war memorials. So there was this law sitting there. And then meanwhile, I as mayor in this weird space of policy where you're trying to shape policy as a city, but you can't direct actions. I set up a, got my colleagues to agree to set up a blue ribbon commission on race memorials in public spaces that met for six months and had 17 public hearings. And it was majority minority. And they ended up confounding a lot of people and recommending that the statues, they gave us two recommendations, but that they would stay inside Charlottesville. They heard a lot of testimony from African-Americans in Charlottesville that the statues should be recontextualized and seen as teachable moments, which surprised a lot of people. And we ended up, and as we were trying to navigate the legal environment, and as even the city manager was trying to figure out how would he create the budget to move the statue, if that's indeed what city council would want to do, not something the mayor could do, city manager would order like public works out there. If there, there was a lawsuit that led to an injunction and that was all stopped anyway. That was one uh, kind of complication that came from the former government we have. Another one is what you just were talking about, which is First Amendment. So we had the Ku Klux Klan from North Carolina filed a permit to come to town to protest the plan removal of the Lee statue after Richard Spencer and his goons came in May. A lot of people were coming and protesting a city council meeting saying, Mayor, you got to stop this permit, stop the permit, cancel the permit. Not only is that not a power that the mayor has, like literally in the city manager form of government, the permitting office is under the vertical of the city manager. And it leads to First Amendment complications if politicians get involved in permitting decisions, because that's more likely, <clears throat> it's more likely to signal that the city is concerned about the content of the speech if politicians in a city manager form government are getting involved in permitting. And I really didn't want to lose in court anything that would happen with the KKK. Right, so we had to follow all these. Yeah. Then you give them a victory and they're raising money off of it. And you see this happening around the country now in different ways. And so it was it was very frustrating to people to have the mayor not only kind of explain what I'm explaining to you, which is this was <laughs> this is the permitting office of the city manager, but but there was also just this this complication of the um of what the First Amendment dictates and and the and and how and how how much local officials' hands are tied to get involved in any free speech event, even with hate speech, absent any specific evidence of a planned unlawful act. And one other example that I'll say to you that goes to the confounding nature of the job, I include in the book a series of text messages that that I had back and forth with the city manager. After, at that KKK event, the police clashed with left-wing counter-protesters who had come. And the police released tear gas against the left-wing counter-protesters after the Ku Klux Klan left town. And there was a whole um, conflagration, and it was awful. And the police kind of refused to let the counter-protesters have this street. They decided to use tear gas to clear the street. I didn't know anything about this because the mayor is not involved in policing, certainly not in day-to-day -day policing and not in the minute-to-minute -minute decisions that were being involved. Um, I had issued a statement 
kind of broadly standing by the police, then it started looking like the police may have told what ended up being a false story about the counter protesters having provoked this mm-hmm. tear gas incident by releasing pepper gel. <laughs> so then the city manager came to me and then he said, you have to take that, you have to take down or amend that statement saying that we have to get to the bottom of what happened. And I said, it seems like the police may have overstepped. And he said, this is leading to real heartburn. You could really undermine the force with this. So then I amended the statement again. Meanwhile, I never knew what actually happened. And it took until six months later in an independent investigation for us to get the facts that there was not, in fact, a provoking incident. And and there had been a a mistake that was made. And all this, I, I just wanted to tell kind of the, the gory details of the of the sausage making that happened between the city manager and mayor, because I think it's very common now that you have these intragovernmental conflicts that create a lot of the stress and the and the immobility that frustrates a lot of people who want local government to act really swiftly or or decisively. Yeah, and you're looking at And even in this line. case. Yeah. Yeah. In this case, you know, we, we couldn't even, yeah, we couldn't even speak clearly about this tear gas incident that had happened and couldn't even get an explanation from the police. And it really created a lot of the, the ground for the intense conflict that happened during the Unite the Right rally. Um, and, you know, you also um, took a lot of heat um, as, as yeah. mayor um, for um, your original position on the statues, um, which right. is sort of middle ground, this pragmatic thing. And it seems like there's no more middle ground anywhere. And I'm not passing judgment on whether that is, is good or bad or right or wrong. But you took a lot of heat because your original position was, you know, I don't know if, if just yanking this thing down is the right thing to do. And that goes in 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 contrast to what a lot of folks on on your side of the aisle and of your line of thought generally think well the yes what is so important to me in this story is it's not so much about me i mean there is a there is a tremendous amount of candor in this book about the stress and strain that a crisis puts on a local official namely in the story being me but you see this happening all around the country right now in minneapolis or different cities uh, where there's there are crises. But it was important for me to get down on paper the actual facts that led to this decision for me, which were, as this Blue Ribbon Commission found, there were many leading African Americans who came up and said, we wanted, they wanted the statues to stay. And it was shocking to people. And they wanted them to be there as teachable moments. And I tell the story of this uh, African-American neighbor of mine who said to me, I want them to stay so that my grandchildren know what happened. Hmm. Hmm. So I ended up supporting the recommendation of the Blue Ribbon Commission, which was that the statue stay and making a speech about this teachable moment idea, which was that let's radically recontextualize them and let's have, we, I met with a landscape architect who came up with this scheme of putting these 12 very tall panes of plexiglass that would be called lenses around the park that would have inscriptions on them about slavery and about racial justice so that you couldn't see the Robert E. Lee statue except through these lenses, which would be a testament to modern values. So we're, we're trying to realize this idea of, of that the Blue Ring Commission had recommended about transforming the monuments in place. And, and that 
now clearly is a minority position among the left with all these Confederate statues that now people are moving to utterly remove. In general, I think the moment has changed and that all of our opinions belong in a pre-white domestic terrorist <laughs> phase, like what happened in Charlottesville, because history does change. However, I, I, the, Jelani Cobb of the New Yorker just did a fascinating tweet about what has happened to the Robert E. Lee statue in Richmond, where it looks like the Berlin Wall. It's got, hmm. it's festooned with graffiti, Black Lives that, Matter yeah. and graffiti. It's got projections of Harriet Tubman on it. And it has, it is being radically recontextualized as we speak. And that's part of the However, history now too of that monument. A hundred percent. And it's, a, I, I talked in the book about what are examples of, ra- of dramatic recontextualization. Uh, and there are, there are many examples, but I, I do, I think the movement, I think the moment has changed. I think there is a real question now about, are there radical recontextualizations that could satisfy what we were being told in Charlottesville from the black community about providing these as teachable moments while giving testament to our present values and that's a that's an open question um, in in the book, but I talked how there was this example in Richmond of the Arthur Ashe statue on Monument Avenue in, in Richmond, and also adding this extraordinary modern statue that was just put there—a thirty-foot-tall equestrian statue of a black man um, by a by a contemporary artist—and on horseback, right near the one of the Confederate General Jeb Stewart. And to me, that was a very compelling example of adding more history. And um, I, I still have misgivings about a total approach that, that removes all of these irritants, but I do also think that the moment has changed. And, uh, and to me, the major thing is just that statues, whatever happens with them, they are a beginning of our, of our project to achieve racial justice, not an end. Yeah. If that's all that you're doing, it can't be the end of the story. Yeah, it's 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 sort of the thing that's most visible um, and easiest to um, sort of wrap your mind around. It's either there or it's not there. Um, you, we talked about that statement that you'd made briefly um, and you ended up regretting that statement, um, kind of criticizing these white nationalists. Um, and you wondered in the book whether it might've further attracted the attention of white nationalists to Charlottesville and made the city more of a target. But I want to ask, what advice would you give to people based on what you've gone through who want to speak up, but they're afraid that the more you say, the more likely you are to experience what you experienced, which was death threats. It's just really this difficult thing to to figure out as to what you should say and how you should say it. And this doesn't just, not just for mayors, this is people in their everyday lives or on social media. What advice would you give to people who say, I want to speak up about hate that I'm seeing, but I'm afraid of having people come after me. Well, it's a great question. And if I'm pausing, it's because I I am reflecting on it. There's a lot in the book about what communities can do in terms of policy and actions to confront extremism. There's a whole project that I started up with the Anti-Defamation League and a couple other partners like the Fetzer Institute and the Charles Koch Institute, which talks about creating strategies where before, during, and after 
extremist events, you employ both the hard and soft sides of policies. So we need more on the hard side, investigation, prosecution, um, uh, cracking down and creating new laws and new structures. Like we, we sued these militia groups that invaded Charlottesville using this law that had never been used before on the hard side with Georgetown University. Soft side, you need civic groups and schools and community relations officers at the police departments to reach out to groups that are marginalized so that they're not radicalized or victimized. And you need strategies to do all this in a proactive posture. So there's a lot of learning that's happened at the community level. You're asking about my experiences personally, though, as a leader and what I would teach people. Um, and I want to be very humble about this because leadership is highly individual and you're bringing your own experience. I talk in the book about how I brought my experience visiting Israel and seeing native Israelis who call themselves Sabras, which is a prickly pear, which is prickly <laughs> on the outside and sweet on the inside. As I kind of developed my own approach to the, to the trolling and the anti-Semitic attacks that I was experiencing as a Jewish mayor and how I wanted to stand up for and be an ally to the, the, the Muslim community in our city that was being attacked. And I did that up to a certain point the national, you know, the Associated Press wrote the story about Mayor Trolls the Trolls. And I was and I was really jabbing back and trying to highlight and expose what this this phenomenon of, of trying to intimidate public officials. And then I got a call from the ADL and which put me in touch with the FBI. And we had a real conversation about when could this kind of poking and prodding that I was doing and really having a strong adamant face for the city against hate speech and these maniacs, mm. when could it backfire or, or put me in the sights of just somebody, a, a rogue, crazy person like you, like you see. And at some point I decided that discretion was a better part of valor and I would focus on what government was actually doing rather than just kind of declaiming all the time. Uh, I think that alliances are really important. I think that if that's one of the lessons that comes out of my experience, if you show that you are an ally and you back that up with actions to embattled groups and you're in a position of power and speeches are very important, but actions are probably more important uh, and statements show, uh, kind of, actions of resolve, of alliance, um, that, that signals that there is a, that there's a system of forces who are together against these attempts to intimidate the city. Like after the Tree of Life, the Pittsburgh Steelers put um, a Star of David on their, on their logo mm. in Pittsburgh when there was a massacre at a synagogue. Yeah very powerful leadership statement from a football team, for instance. And so I think that, that, I don't know, I hope that answers your question. So alliance, that, alliance is the way as opposed to being the keyboard warrior and drawing the fire of these folks. I think so. And, and I, you know, I, I talk a lot in the book about how I came into this job of the mayorship and all of the publicity that we had with deep misgivings about a politics exclusively of symbolic victories 
And there had been a lot of symbolism and a lot of symbolic fights in Charlottesville that preceded me. And I came in wanting to be somebody who really focused on action and could demonstrate what government was doing, how were we changing the lives of people. And especially when you have a president who thrives on symbolic victories and has really distracted us from substance to symbols, I, I have misgivings about purely symbolic statements, but on the other hand, that's what people need symbols. And they need, they need to hear, they need to see symbols and statements and powerful speeches. So I, I guess the best answer is that you're able to do both. You're able to give, to show people that you care about what they care about with symbols and that you're giving powerful speeches and you're taking powerful stands, but it has to be wedded to actual meaningful action that happens when the spotlight is off the leader. So um, let's talk about 812. That's the um, kind of the date that you put in the book. Look, you made it you know, look almost like 9-11. I'm not sure if that was intentional, but very, oh, very, very yeah. rarely do we see dates like that in a book and you had eight you know, uh, slash 12 in there. Um, so that's you know, certainly what mm-hmm. the day meant to you and to Charlottesville. Um, you know, thank goodness 3,000 people didn't die, but uh, mm-hmm. um, but that's just sort of what the, the symbolism kind of, that's kind of how the symbolism hit me. So explain 812, explain the day, explain where you are as a weak mayor. Um, you were kind of looking for a home to kind of, uh, a, a base to kind of watch this all from. So 812 hits, these folks are coming to town and here you are as a weak mayor, um, trying to figure out what to do and how to keep your people safe. Well, and key to telling this story is what happened the two weeks before this. So August 12th was the, was the planned date for this Unite the Right rally, which because of all the events I talked about earlier, these two white nationalist events and tremendous conflict between the activist community and the police about the response when the KKK came and the use of tear gas and how the Virginia ACLU had generated this 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 kind of statewide protest against the city of Charlottesville about how they had responded in this earlier event. And so you had, and then meanwhile, there was a national call to the right wing and the alt-right movement to come to Charlottesville. And then there was a national call to left wing movement to come defend Charlottesville. And I led an effort from the, the weak mayor position to force a relocation of that event from downtown Charlottesville to a park where the groups could have been safely separated. And that led to a, a, just an extraordinary conflict within the government that not a lot of people knew about at that time, which is the mayor and the city councilors overruled the city manager and the police chief and the city attorney. And we stepped very kind of dramatically into the operational role, which wasn't part of our jobs, but we were so alarmed about the mishandling of the prior events that we said this can't happen in downtown Charlottesville where the Lee statue is, even though First Amendment law, absent any evidence of a planned imminent unlawful act, they want hate speech hate speakers to be next to, physically next to the thing that they're talking about. So we knew that a judge was going to likely rule in favor of this whole Unite the Right rally happening right next to the Lee statue, which is right in crowded downtown Charlottesville. And we thought that that would be a disaster. And so the city, the elected officials overruled the, um, the, all of the administrative officials in the government and hired an outside law firm to try and relocate the rally 
and give us a rationale to do that. And the rationale was that the rally was going to be bigger. The content neutral rationale was there were going to be more people and it couldn't be safely handled than the original permit application, which said there are only 400 people are going to be there. And we ended up getting sued and lost in court, in federal court, on the by the Virginia ACLU, lost on the eve of the rally. So on the day of the Unite the Rally, Right rally, I'm reeling from that court loss. There had been a violent march of these groups on the UVA campus the night before where they were using tiki torches and they had brawled with protesting students next to the Thomas Jefferson statue while chanting Jews will not replace us. I had been on the phone with the attorney general's office and with the president of UVA the night before trying to figure out, was there some way we could go back in a court to try and stop the rally? Our city attorney's office said that they didn't think that we could. They didn't file for an emergency injunction. The attorney general would have had to represent the university because that's how it works in Virginia. And so there was this sense of impending doom and loss and righteous anger as this whole thing was happening and then the day happens the groups it turns out that what we didn't know and there was this whole collapse at the federal level which is a whole other story in the book was that this national invasion of the city was going to include organized paramilitary groups militias came to the city 11 of them were right-wing militias with assault rifles and uniforms and insignia and command structures. I couldn't be on the site of the rally because the police chief had said that they couldn't provide anybody to accompany me or protect me. And it seemed like I just, it wouldn't be safe for the mayor of the city to be out there without anybody. So I was in city hall at the time monitoring everything and hearing about thing, which was near. I wasn't even allowed in the command center, which is where I wanted to be. And I tell this very painful story in the book about demanding to be in the command center and the city manager refused me entry. Yeah, they say they to, didn't the, want to, to the empty conference room upstairs. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that you needed all of us aligned. I mean, you had a, you had an unfolding firestorm. You needed the, the citizenry needed to hear from us. They didn't even hear from us until six o'clock that day. Um, and it really was a, a mess. And this the, the rally was disbanded. And then the car attack happened. They right. So I was going to ask. So, so, um, so where are you? Um, what's happening as far as you can tell when you find out that Heather Heyer is killed by this vehicle? Well, I, after being refused entry to the command center by the city manager, I went to the other, the emergency operations center, which is sort of where the secondary per- people, leaders have been sent, like the the University of Virginia president and our fire chief, who should have been at the command center, but wasn't. They'd set up this whole other operation center with TVs and monitors, but it wasn't where the police were and the Virginia State Police. So I was there when I heard about the car attack. Um, what had happened earlier in the day was- What goes through your under, mind? But just, just let me just pause well, you for I, one second. I, I, yeah, what went through my mind was I couldn't, I talk about in the book, it was hard for me to process that it could have been intentional. And I put up a tweet, I think, when I learned immediately that somebody had died, even though I wasn't really in the chain of command, but I thought it was important. Um, And I watched the video and I only saw one take on the video first. 
of the car plowing into the protesters. And it just seemed like it, I couldn't process that level of evil or, or intentional murder. Even though you'd seen cars weaponized elsewhere, I, I, my brain didn't want to accept it. And then I think then I pretty soon after saw the video of the car backing up, driving back from having run into the crowd and then backing up. And then it looked like, I mean, I thought maybe somebody elderly had 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 a stroke or had accidentally pressed the accelerator, which who knows, or somebody had had a seizure. And once I, and somebody actually put up a, I think a, a sent me a message or something saying this was this was intentional, um, and then I, I think I processed like everybody else slow, slowly and then quickly that it had to have been an intentional act. And then you were like, oh my god, this whole thing just took on a whole different. It, it kind of became the absolute worst thing you could have imagined. I mean, I, I talk in the book about how I was writing my journal a couple of days earlier and trying to think about the worst case scenarios and a lot of what I fear had happened you had the police have to declare an unlawful assembly because they couldn't they didn't have any other tools and everybody was disbanded but they didn't have plans to separate the groups from each other before during and after the event and that was that that made it much worse but this thing about having a neo-nazi weaponize his car into a group of counter protesters was the was about the worst thing that I could imagine. And I think we're still living with that, with what happened in the city today. And then we, we find out that Heather Heyer is a young person who was there to protest honestly and safely. And she's in this group of right. people. Um, right. And you met um, with her family and her family had some very poignant words about the pain that they had been through. Um, why don't you just describe You know, I, I met only, yeah, as I was preparing for this book to come out, Evan, I, I met with this. This was just last fall. I met with a with I think four survivors of the car attack just to kind of meet them and and understand where they were. And there are two people. This is two years after, over two years after, who still one was kind of gr a gr hit on the arm um, by the car. The, and they witness all this unfold right in front of them and they still can't work. They're so traumatized and so haunted by seeing to this day. Oh yeah. Seeing several mm. dozen people mowed down, thrown in the air by an intentional use of a car. It was a very crowded group of, of joyous protesters who just kind of run the neo-Nazis out of town. And they, it was very, um, there's so many levels of trauma that the book records and talks about, but that was the most enduring, painful one was the people who were right there on site and what they experienced to me. Um, the biggest regret that you had, um, and I'm wondering if you're being a bit hard on yourself, but the biggest regret that you had was that you couldn't calm things down, that you didn't have this magical power to say something and have people go, you know, um, maybe he's right. Um, when I look at the images of that, you know, that were recorded by all the newspapers and magazines and websites and Twitter and all that, um, I, I myself am petrified of what I, from what I've seen. And I've seen these sorts of things in person myself just because of what I do for a living. Um, so I would ask, you know, are you being harder, uh, hard on yourself? Is there anything 
that can calm these folks down. I mean, look at what they were capable of and look at the imagery they were willing to carry around tiki torches and in what's supposed to be a studious town and screaming blood and soil and all these, these terrible things. Um, was there any calming these folks down? Is there any calming them down? What do we do about this kind of hate? Well, and it's a, it's, I mean, unfortunately it, it's, it's it's a, it is there is components across the spectrum so you also did have a, a significant anarchism uh, across the spectrum left and right and a lot of that was directed at the elected officials and you're seeing that happen right now in cities around the country seattle and minneapolis and washington and richmond right now and people are very angry today about many things. And some of the right, rightfully, uh, some part of that anger has become anti-government and anti-institution entirely. So there's no role for government to solve these problems in this, in this, in this view. And any, uh, virtually any government official who's actually talking about solutions is the enemy because it's not going to come through government. And that really worries me. And I told this very harrowing story of what it's like being in a position of, of, of you know, policymaking for the reasons that I wanted people to understand what it's like. And lo and behold, I wrote this book about what it was like in Charlottesville in 2017. You have situations like this with these kinds of conflicts and this kind of um, just havoc in cities around the country right now. And the challenge, when I look at the anger about police brutality and systemic racism, the anger, the righteous anger has to be channeled into action. It's gonna to have to be channeled into how is government solving these problems. If you're gonna dismantle the police department in Minneapolis and or implement new budgets to re defund and refund community policing, that's going to be complicated policy work that needs people committed to being in positions like mayor and city councilor. And they have to be committed to listening and being able to work with each other and being able to make good policy. And it's, it can be pretty harrowing. And I wanted people to understand you need a thick skin, you need a big heart. I want everybody else though to understand activists and citizens and journalists and political donors and anybody involved in supporting people, government's ability to get through the chaos and the havoc to answers. You need to support people who are committed to deliberating and actually problem solving. And you need to stand up against intimidation of any kind because it really gets in the way of, of actually providing any answers in this time. And um, so that, that's, that's the best answer that I, that I can provide. Um, I, I think you're probably right. I am hard on myself. I, I look the, at the, the book faces is, of those people who are marching around with torches. Look at them. Yeah. You know, it, well, the, the, and they're right They're the, the, the right wing white nationalist racist extremists in this country who have been emboldened to quote, unite the right and make America great again. There are people that are wear, wearing MAGA caps among the militias. Um, they need to be cracked down on, I believe, because they do, they are connected with domestic terrorism. And a lot of the book talks about 
how you need a strategy and how the Trump administration really abandoned any strategy because they were part of their political coalition, white nationalists. So I think elected officials need to stand strong and resolute and they need to do things like we did, which is sue them as militia organizations that are illegal. But the personal cost is very serious. And I talk in the book about, you know, going to therapy to deal with the trauma of having been the sponge for so much, so many verbal assaults and so much trauma across the board. And I think anybody, uh, it's, it's ironic as public office has probably never been harder, but it's never been more important at the local level. Uh, give us a recap of where Charlottesville is at now. Um, just a quick recap, what happened to the memorials? Um, and you know, one of the questions you ask is whether this is going, um, whether this is going to be what the city is remembered for in 50 years, like Birmingham and the church bombing. But, but give us a recap of Charlottesville and what happened to the memorials and then whether this is the city's 50-year sort of sentence. Well, as we speak on July 1st, this is the day that the law that was changed by the Virginia General Assembly after everything in Charlottesville. Charlottesville led to a cascade of political effects in Virginia, including Democrats being elected statewide and retaking both houses of the General Assembly, which then in turn led to the law that had prevented us from moving the statues being changed. I, after, very soon after the Unite the Right rally, I called on the governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe at the time to call the General Assembly back for a special assembly, special session to get rid of that law, which he, which he didn't do. Um, but now that law is gone and today the law is in effect. It came into effect July 1st. So I think that the city council and Charlottesville very quickly and the city manager are gonna move the Robert E. Lee statue and probably the Stonewall Jackson one. I think that that could happen very soon. Mm. Um, they have been in place this whole time uh, so that that's what's going to happen. I think that they'll be moved really soon. I don't know where they're going to go, but um, on I think that the city is still internally traumatized. Although some of the trauma has been processed through the, I talk in the book about the metaphor of a of intermeshed gears, where the the quickly the the least powerful small gears, the ones that move the most fast like social media, but then the most powerful big gear is the ones that move more slow, like prosecuting um, the, the guy who the, the guy who weaponized his car and killed Heather Heyer, which took over a year, but he, he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. And I think that when those prosecutions happen successfully, those convictions, that really did lead to a lot of healing. The city has done a lot of healing on its own. We have an African-American female mayor who I seconded the nomination of, even though I we disagreed on a whole host of things. There's a whole interesting story about yeah. that in the, in the book. Um, and the city has really adopted an equity lens and has focused a huge, including while I, was, while I was mayor and while I was still in the city council, on equity as a response to white nationalism. So I think that internally there's been a lot of progress, but it's still pretty raw three years on and it's very dynamic. Kind of nationally, internationally, I think that Charlottesville is this morphing phenomenon where it's gonna continue to grow in meaning, which, which amazes me. You have Joe Biden running his presidential campaign about Charlottesville and Trump's response to Charlottesville, you have Charlottesville becomes more and more meaningful as we see 
more and more transparently how central violent white nationalism is to Trumpism. The kind of first reveal of that was Charlottesville when he said there were good people on both sides and he was really casting Confederate sympathizers as, as, as sympathetic. But now it's much worse when you see what it really meant and you've had so many other instances. Um, I think that who knows what history is gonna say about where the black community originally was on statues and what's happening with these statues now and where we'll be 10 years from now. I think it's important to just understand this history because we are, it's what Faulkner said, history is not in the past, it's not even past. We are literally creating modern history as we speak and Charlottesville created modern history and there's a lot of surprising tales in it. And the final thing I would say is there's a lot in the book about the First Amendment and this horrible set of ties that bind the hands between freedom of speech and public safety. And I believe that courts are going to be more pragmatic toward local officials' attempts to achieve public safety as a result of Charlottesville, as a result of how the, these black and white absolute tests that we had to apply. I think that First Amendment jurisprudence is changing as we speak, and there's a lot of evidence of that. And I think that Charlottesville leads to the nation learning that we have to have a, diff, a set of more pragmatic tools to deal with with this kind of um, metastasizing violent white nationalism now that's happening and that you can't tie public officials' hands just because they don't have like a written down statement of I plan to do this this unlawful act at this timestamp date in the future. Right. And just for people who may not have read it yet, there was such a a, a sort of a struggle over whether the clear and present danger had been presented just by the blanket statement of we're going to be there on such and such day. And we would maybe one day like to do these things, but we're not giving you an actual time and place that we're doing them. That was uh, frustrating to right. read about in the book, but I just wanted to recap that for everybody. So you write, um, it's easy to be simple, but more important to be complex. So what are some tips on how to be complex without compromising your values? What I believe is that we are dealing, if we're gonna deal with systemic racism and gross inequality in this country, A, and racial disparities across education, opportunity, economic opportunity, environmental justice, there's part of that conversation that is that begins in rage and in anger and in, and in kind of pretty simplified observations. But if we're going to move it toward what we do and how do you actually rectify, we, we have dozens of programs in place in Charlottesville to deal with economic injustice, small business supports, minority contracting, and you're eating away at the problem, but localities can only, they, you need bigger and bolder measures. And that means that we need to talk about policy and budgets and evidence and programs that work and the federal part on this. And that's serious stuff. That's like new deal type work. That's not, that's not, that's not tweets and it's not the, it's not politics. So it, it's not even signing petitions. It's like getting your hands really dirty with government. That that's um, one answer that I have. And 
if we're going to seriously get a handle on violent white nationalism and domestic terrorism in this country, that means we need we need sweeping tools across social media platforms, across mid-level tech companies. I talk a lot about this in the in the book, many examples of tech companies choosing to adopt these trust and safety platforms and programs. The federal government and local and state governments need to up their intelligence need and their prosecution of violent groups. The Trump administration took white nationalists out of basically the lens of potential domestic terrorism. And that's that's a lesson from Charlottesville. And people need to support this work from the professionals who do it. And it's okay to be complex. I mean, it's really easy to sit there on Facebook and go, no, yes, no, yes, no. And you fight with all your friends and neighbors, but you, you have to be comfortable with yourself and you have to be able to be complex. The, victor, the things that I'm most proud of in the, in the book and in my time in office, and I just tell the story again, not because I'm that important, but because anybody who's looking at conflicts and havoc in government today, which is happening again all around the country, I wanted to tell some of these stories Creating affordable housing is really complex. We quadrupled the rate of affordable housing creation in my last time, month as mayor as a result of 812. And it's very complicated to leverage dollars and to work with experienced developers who have real estate. And we were able to, to redevelop public housing in Charlottesville in part because the Dave Matthews Band put in over $10 million in a partnership deal with the city. That's complicated. Creating alliances and finding dollars in a scarce time and, and actually getting equity created rather than just acts about equity is gonna be complex. So you need people who believe in government and who are gonna follow through and not just try and get some victory that they do a tweet about, but then there doesn't actually impact people's lives. So I, I think the nature of, of uh, the nature of the challenges and the nature of the victories is in, it's inherently com complex and that's why it's hard work and that's why it's important to have good people do it. So yeah, it's a, it's a, there's a moral in the story, which is the answers to what was revealed in Charlottesville mean that government and good government and government that doesn't oversimplify these problems is more important than it ever has been. Uh, all right. I want to wrap this up, Mayor, with, with one last quote um, that just struck me from the book. Um, Heather Heyer's own mother says, mm -hmm. we have to have pain to proceed mm -hmm. as a society. Yeah. Now, she doesn't yeah. make any bones about not wanting to make that trade. Um, of course, she would never make that trade. But she does say we have to have pain to proceed. Um, why did you think that was so important as to include it? Well, she's a friend of mine. Susan Bro, and she's a she's an amazing person, and a lot of people were very surprised that we got to be friends because um, she, you know, she had every right to be angry at everybody in the city. She she un, she understands a lot about the nature of government that we had and well, what I tried to do, what we tried to do, and I was sitting down with her as I was finishing the book, and I asked her about this idea that is central to the book, which is how can how can struggle and pain, what role can they play in progress? And I had this idea that I took from Greek tragedy, which is the agon, agony, can be an engine to, to 
to progress. It's it, we don't think about it that way, but you you know if we look at our own lives, a lot of time the worst things that happened to you ended up opening a door to the best things that you pursued. And I just wanted to kind of test that idea with her because that's how I see Charlottesville playing in our country's modern history. I think it's ultimately gonna all of the pain will ultimately have a purpose. That that's that's really the 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 question and my 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 contention in the and she ended up not only reinforcing it but going deep in her own personal experience and talking about what had happened with her daughter's death and all she she drew a metaphor from her own a, a very painful surgery that she had had where they had to get this this infection out from underneath the surgery and she talks about needing to excise the rot and the infection and the wounds underneath our history and that's painful but the pain ultimately does get us to a, a place where we couldn't have gotten to but for uh taking but for that process hmm. so that's that's the value i was so honored that she spoke to me that candidly about what she'd been through and it really was a capstone for the that overarching kind of observation in the book well, I'm sure uh, you, uh, like all of us, think of Heather Heyer and her family uh, every day. Former Charlottesville Mayor Mike Signer, author of Cry Havoc, Charlottesville and American Democracy Under Siege. Thank you so much for joining us and having this conversation. Thank you. I'm very honored to be your second guest. And, uh, <laughs> it's a great it's a great thing you're doing with this podcast. Well, I, I think many people appreciate it. Well, we appreciate it. Um, certainly check out that book. Also his book on James Madison, which is fantastic. It's called Becoming Madison. And also his Twitter feed is at Mike Signer. Thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports History and Today, Conversations with America's Top Nonfiction Authors and Why Their Books Matter Right Now. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>